If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon Makuku Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grawn, your wail. From giants right down to fairies, above the trooping and solitary, and close to us, sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Meryl Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore, mythology, we retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan and I am your host and Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 55 of Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. We are coming to you as always from the beautiful surroundings of the Headstuff Podcast Network Studios here in Dublin. 55 episodes and we have reached the Tawn. This is now part two of Anton Bokuna, the cattle raid of Cooley, the greatest epic in the Ulster cycle and indeed of any cycle of Irish mythology and it feels so good to finally be in the depths of this story, this great, great story that we have had one episode of so far. So this is your very first time listening Um certainly at least go back to the episode before this to part one of the tawn if not to the very beginning of the podcast to see what we've been building up to over the last 54 episodes leading up to this one right here i'm not going to chat too much beforehand um because we're into a brand new year it feels really great to be back in the studio and and adapting the tawn it is proving as challenging and rewarding as I had expected it to be in how long I was putting it off or um, trying to build up my skills in writing and adapting this podcast before taking on uh, the big Goliath that is the Thon. But this is part two, which we will chat a bit more about afterwards. And this is Encountering Coo Cullen. <laughs> The Tawn, Part 2 Encountering Cucullan. On Thon Bokuna, the cattle raid of Cooley had begun. Queen Maeve of Connacht had assembled 19 legions of 3,000 strong to march on Ulster to capture Don Cuna, the brown bull of Cooley. She wanted this bull to rival her own husband Alil's prize bull, Finn Bannock the white-horned of Connacht. And when Duncuna was not loaned willingly, Maeve assembled the greatest army ever seen to take it by force. Her army marched from Cruachan Forth in Connacht across the breadth of the island of Era before crossing the border of Ulster. They had come across no resistance up to this point, but once they had crossed the border, every shield was up and every sword was bare. 
After making camp for the night, Fergus MacRook, the exiled former king of Ulster and ally to Queen Maeve, came to the tent of Maeve and Alil to strategize. I don't want the galleon to come any further, said Maeve. The galleon were a horde of three thousand warriors from north of Leinster of ancient stock. They were thought to have been on the island since the time of invasions, before the coming of the Tua de Danon. As such, they were some of the greatest warriors at Maeve's disposal. My love, said Alil, the Galleon are the best fighters we have. Why would we march on without them? Exactly. They will make all the kills and take all of the credit. I will not be undermined. Not in this battle. So be it, conceded Alil. We have the largest army ever assembled. We do not need these Leinster men. I will have them sent home at once. No. If we send them home, they may invade our vacant lands while we're away. So what do you propose, my love? They must be killed. Killed? interjected Fergus MacRock. You ask for the aid of all the provinces of Era, and you wish to murder your own followers before we even enter battle. He is right, my love, said Alil. There would be a terrible curse laid on our armies if we begin this war with such a treacherous act. The vengeance of the Morrigan would be swift and terrible. Well, Fergus MacRoke, what do you suggest? asked Maeve. Separate the galleon. Disperse them amongst the many legions of soldiers in your armies, and dress them in a variety of uniforms. Then their great deeds in battle will not stand out, and if they do, it will be for the benefit of other troops. Maeve was surprisingly satisfied with this. Let it be done. I would also caution you, my queen, said Fergus. These armies will not follow a treacherous leader. One word of this, and your own followers will turn on you. Do not make veiled threats to me, O exiled former king of Ulster. You who served the man who stole your throne before being banished by him. Do you think my armies will follow you instead? Your might in battle and nobility is valued here, Fergus MacRoke. But never forget, it is my land of Connacht that you and your followers found refuge. Fergus didn't dare speak again. The exiled Ulster king was in a dichotomy, as he had been since leaving home. Conchabar was his enemy, but Fergus was, and always would be, an Ulster man. He hated that soon he would be taking up arms against his fellow provincemen. So Fergus sent a warning to Eamon Macha to alert Ulster of the approaching armies. Fergus was given command of the entire Connacht forces, and intentionally took a long route through the province to give Ulster time to muster their own army. This did not go unnoticed by Maeve. Fergus, perhaps I was wrong to trust you. What route are you taking our armies? Straight into a trap, is it? Have you always remained loyal to Ulster? My queen, I am loyal to you, said Fergus. Do not forget I am an Ulster man and know these lands better than anyone. I take us the safest route and seek to avoid Cú Cullum. 
Who is Cucullin? asked Maeve. Everyone talks of this boy dog of Ulster like he is some sort of god. He may well be, said Fergus. He is nephew to King Conkobar, and was the youngest member of the king's personal guard. He was trained by Shgatok the Shadow on Alba, where he defeated and bedded her enemies. There is no warrior greater or with more weaponry at his disposal. There is no one more loyal to his province. It is said that he killed his only son for the honour of Ulster. Facing him is inevitable, but it should be put off as long as possible. Meanwhile, at Eamon Macha, Fergus's warning had reached King Conkobar MacNessa. Ulster had been cursed by Macha, one part of the war goddess known as the Morrigan. She had cursed all the men of Ulster to feel the pangs of childhood whenever they were under any stress or hardship. So sending the Red Branch Knights into war would cripple them all. Ulster would need time, as much as it could afford. And the only warrior of Ulster who was not affected by the birth pangs was also the province's greatest weapon, the Hound himself, Cucullin. Hound of Ulster, go, said Conkobar to his nephew. Delay these enemies while we prepare for war. I swear, they will never reach Cooley. And Cucullin left Eamon Maka with a smile on his face. Cucullin set out on his chariot with only his charioteer leg for company. When they finally happened upon the collected armies of Maeve and Alil, they began to count them. Something isn't right, said Cucullin. These numbers are off. Leg, what count do you have? I count 18 legions of 3,000 strong. I had 18 too, said Cucullin. But there seems to be more in each. It is the galleon. They have separated the 19th legion among the rest. This Queen Maeve clearly feared the prowess of one of her people might take away from her own glory. Oh, this will be fun. And Cucullin began to set about a series of challenges for the enemy army. First he left in their path a spansel hoop, which was essentially a weaved lasso for roping and restraining cattle. Cucullin weaved it with one hand and left it there beside a stone which had written in Ohm, None shall pass here, unless there is one among you who can weave a spancel hoop with one hand only. When Alil and Maeve came upon this, they asked Fergus, What trickery is this? No trickery at all, said Fergus. I don't know about you, but I know none who could match the making of this rope. Suppose we pass anyway. Ignore it, said Maeve. Should we do that? The wrath of Cú Cullen will be devastating. To ignore a challenge like this would be to strip away all protections and enchantments. Then Alil said, So let us not pass this way. Let us go around, through the forest. Our armies would not fit through these woods, said Fergus. They will if we cut them down, said Maeve. And the entire forest was felled before them and is named as such to this day. 
Cucullin's next challenge was to cut off the limb of a tree with one swing of his sword. The limb had four sharp branches, and the hound planted the fork in the middle of a river. Soon two chariots of Connacht came upon the fork, with two warriors and their charioteers on each. Cucullin descended upon them, and with one clean sweep like a scissors through wrapping paper cut each of their heads off and mounted them on the four-pronged branches. When the armies of Alil and Maeve came upon the fork, there was again a stone written in home. None shall pass here unless one of you can cut the limb of a tree with one swing, and it can't be Fergus. Despite this warning, Fergus McRook, as a former leader of the Red Branch Knights, was the only one who would have a chance of successfully completing the challenge. He used sword and chariot to charge many trees, and many trees were hacked and swords and chariots broken, but eventually Fergus succeeded. The collected armies of Aire cautiously moved forward. The third challenge was Cucullin uprooted the largest tree trunk he could find and blocked the road with it. The message in Ohm this time said that no army shall pass here unless they have one who can clear this tree trunk with their horse and chariot on the first try. Thirty of Maeve's army attempted the jump, and thirty horses and chariots smashed to pieces against the oak, and each of their riders perished. Maeve and Alil were not keen for Fergus to attempt the jump, as he had already proved invaluable and may not succeed. Instead, the armies of Connacht camped there at that felled oak. Maeve summoned one of her fiercer but still expendable warriors, Freak Macfidag. We sit here, negotiating the games of this child, she said. Seek out this hound of Ulster and slay him. Freak scouted Cucullin and waited for a moment when the hound was vulnerable. It was in a river when Cucullin was bathing. Freak seized his moment. He is surely weaker in water thought Frick. So the Connacht man stripped down and approached. When Cucullin heard the sound of something wading in the water behind him, he said, Stop where you stand. If you come any closer, I will have to kill you, and that would be a great pity. I am Frick. I fight for Queen Maeve, so I am here to fight you. Very well, said Cucullin. To give the illusion of fairness, I will allow you to choose how we fight. Here in the water, no weapons but our own hands. And Freak and Cucullin began to wrestle and grapple right there in the river. One would be submerged and then the other, but it was not long before Cucullin had mounted his opponent and held him underwater. At the moment before drowning, Cucullin lifted Freak back out of the water. Will you allow me to let you live? I would never have it said of me that I gave in to the Hound of Ulster. So be it, and Cucullin drowned Freach. When Maeve heard of the death of her soldier, she mourned for him, while Fergus took his chariot and cleared the mighty oak tree with a single leap. The challenge is complete. Let us move forward. As the armies of Maeve moved forward through Ulster, she dispatched more and more warriors to pursue the one who defended the province. None returned. 
Well, not in one piece, at least. Cucullin was riding across a plain which would become known as Tavlochti Orlam when his chariot broke. As his charioteer leg began the repairs, Cucullin went out to cut down some wood to use. It was in these woods that Cucullin came across a man building a new chariot. The Hound of Ulster thought this man was an Ulster warrior. How stupid is this boy to be out here on his own, with an invading army at our heels, thought Cucullin. The Hound of Ulster approached. Can I help you with that? Why yes, that would be very much appreciated. I am afraid to be out here on my own for too long. Rightly so, said Cucullin, and they began to cut and trim and build a fine new chariot. The young charioteer began to notice the incredible aptitude with which this good Samaritan was constructing this chariot. He could almost whittle and saw through wood with his bare hands. This isn't the first chariot you've built, said the charioteer. It certainly isn't, said Cucullin. Is it the first one you've broken? No, no, not at all. I am a charioteer of Prince Orlam. I haven't had the pleasure. Who is Prince Orlam? He is the son of Alil and Maeve. At this, Cucullin stopped cutting. And what has you and the prince so far from the armies of his parents? We were dispatched to hunt down the cursed cur that is Cucullin. Is that so? Yes, that is why it is so important to repair this chariot as soon as possible. Of course. How rude of me, you that have aided me in my time of need. What is your name? I am the cursed cur. What? I am Cucullin. At this, the charioteer stopped cutting. He went into shock. He attempted to speak, but couldn't form words. He went for his sword, but couldn't stop his hand from trembling. Do not be afraid, said Cucullin. I do not kill charioteers. But you will tell me where your prince is. He... He... Out with it, boy. He... He, he washes in, in the dike of that river. Thank you. And Cucullin went to the river, found Prince Orlam, and without warning cut his head clean off. That is why the place is known as Tavlochti Orlam, Orlam's burial place. But his head was not buried there. Cucullin took the severed head and strapped it to the back of the terrified charioteer before giving these instructions. You will return to your queen with this head, which you will keep on your back until you arrive, or I will kill you. The petrified charioteer ran all the way back to where the armies of Maeve were assembled. It seemed at any moment like his knees would give way underneath him. He knew no matter how far he walked, he was still in the sight of Cucullin. The charioteer finally arrived at the camp and presented Maeve and Alil the severed head of their own son. What monstrosity is this? cried Maeve. Why do you show this to us? This is our son, not some hunting trophy. I, I feared the wrath of Cucullin, my queen. You feared your enemy more than you respected your king and queen, asked Alil. It is you who should have perished, not Orlam. And indeed, the charioteer was still in the distant sights of Cucullin, 
who took his sling and launched a stone across the plains of Cooley and shattered the skull of the charioteer. The blood and bone and brain splattered all over the faces of Alil and Maeve, who finally realised this was no typical foe. Cucullin was capable of great nobility and respect, but also of acts of vicious and ruthless violence. It was a lie that he did not harm charioteers. The message had been received in the bloody and horrified faces of Alil and Maeve. To be continued. And that is part two of the Tawn on Fireside. <coughs> Beg your pardon. We get right into it. There is... We start with these challenges of Ku Cullen because this is... No, Siri, go away. <laughs> I didn't even say anything remotely. Hey, siri This, I Well, I did say it there. <laughs> Piss off, Siri. Uh, this is really straight away, this is what we... This is what the Tawn is about. If you were to describe the Tawn in one sentence, it is about Ku Cullen facing off against the armies of Queen and Maeve single-handedly. Ulster is laid low by the pa- pangs of Ulster, the birthing pangs cursed upon the province because Kunkabar MacNessa forced Macha of the Morrigan to race him in a chariot race while she was heavily pregnant. And so she cursed every member of uh, every man in Ulster except Ku Cullen. Ku Cullen was the only one who wasn't him and his father, Suadam. Supposedly because he was uh, of, of a royal lineage but also of uh, a combination of good stock mortally and also was descended from the gods as well. So he was exempt and wasn't even born, to be fair, at the time of uh, of the curse being le- being um, being cursed. But now Ku Cullen is the only thing that stands between Ulster and the rest of the world or the rest of Ireland. That's that's what's so fascinating is that uh, we have this collected army from not just Connacht, but from Leinster and Munster and Meath as well, Meath as it was a province at that point. And that is why, as I've said before, Ku Cullen is quite interestingly used as both a symbol uh, by, by Republicans and Nationalists and Unionists and Ulster supporters in that some viewer... <laughs> The uh, the Fenians would view Ku Cullen as uh, this quintessential Irish hero, standing for just the defence of your own country, whereas uh, Unionists would view it as Ulster versus the rest of Ireland, which is certainly how they had been made feel, considering they are isolated from the United Kingdom geographically, from which which they are a part of. So Ku Cullen, there is a very clear argument why you could use that him as a symbol for either case um i of course follow fall into the camp of him being just this great sig- symbol of ireland and this great irish hero that everyone who lives on this island should be proud of but here we have him facing single-handedly against queen maeve and we see queen maeve straight away her um her assuredness in this battle in that 
she's gathered these 57,000 strong and she has this troop, the Galleon, these North Leinster men and her first her first decision as she enters Cooley or enters Ulster is to murder her strongest group of soldiers. She's that sure of victory that she doesn't want it to be Leinster men who claim all the victory for themselves. She wants to divvy out the victory. That is her main strategy, is that like victory is not in question. And how could it be? She has 57,000 soldiers and all of Ulster is laid low by the birthing pangs, which she does know about, but she does not know about the prowess of Cúchulain, or even really who Cúchulain is. As I've been adapting this, one of the more interesting characters to come forward is Fergus McRoke. So Fergus was the Ulster king when Cunkabar MacNessa was a boy and Cunkabar, Fergus wanted to marry Cunkabar's mother and they reached an agreement where Cunkabar would be allowed to rule the province of Ulster for a year and then Fergus would take the kingship back and would marry his mother. But Fergus, or Cunkabar rather, proved such a good king in that first year, becoming so generous that uh, the people of Ulster decided to keep him on the throne. But Fergus respected Cunkabar and kept in his service up until the point where Deirdre, was, who was meant to be married to Cunkabar, fell in love with Nisha of the sons of Ishnach. They fled the country because they feared Conquibar's wrath. And when they returned, Conquibar had them all killed and took Deirdre for his own slave or slave of a wife. And then rather than be a slave of a wife, uh, Deirdre committed suicide. At which point Fergus took all those who followed him, which was a horde of about 3,000 strong again, and uh, put themselves in self-appointed exile in Connacht, with Queen Maeve and King Alil. And that right there that I've just described, that's about three that's about three of the stories that we tackle before Christmas as the in the before the Tawn sections. Those are the prologue stories to the Tawn. And that's how much they keep coming up and keep becoming relevant. And I have tried where possible to you know, not to spoon feed, but to just say do a little bit, I'll try and do a little bit of each part of like, you know, this is where we are. It's the previously on Rocky. It's the previously on anything. Um, but Fergus McRoke becomes this incredibly interesting character because he is an Ulster man. And that seems to be what goes through his uh, his mind constantly throughout this epic is that he fights for Alil and Maeve because they were the ones who took him in and so he is just loyal to them now so he has to fight for them uh, to maintain his honour but he is still an Ulster man and even though he had this falling out with Conquabar, he still feels this loyalty to his own province and so warns Ulster he is the one to warn Ulster of the invading army to make it as fair a fight as possible and delays the army to give Ulster time to muster their army so that no one can say that so that if it's a, as fair a fight as possible then no one can accuse Fergus of treachery or a lack of honour and the my interest in him has only grown as I've gotten deeper into this adaptation I like him quite a lot so the first uh, encounters that the armies of Connacht have with Cúchulain are these series of trials these three tests 
it seems like to me like these are constant reminders of Ku Cullen's youth. You know, in some versions, quite a lot to be honest. Um, Ku Cullen is only supposed to be seventeen at this point, um, but he is also often made like thirty to thirty-three to have the parallels with Jesus Christ, of course, as he is our Christ Hercules, as I say. I like to picture him being a little bit older at this stage because he's had so many of these exploits as we've explored in the episodes about Ku Cullen on his birth and his love and his training. I personally, you know, like in some stories, his training with Skathok, which he beds her daughter and her enemy, uh, Ku Cullen's only supposed to be about seven or eight then, so I just think that that's just to a preposterous degree. So I like to picture him being the younger man there and that he's more of a mature warrior here, but that you still get this sense of his youth and his f- and his uh, sense of sport in that he doesn't just begin picking off these warriors of Connacht. He sets these series of trials for him, which he very explicitly says certainly for a couple of them, that Fergus cannot be the one to achieve. There is a, there is also a sense throughout the town that in the land of Ulster, Ulster men, or certainly these red branch knights, the, those who fight for the Ulster king, that there is something special about them, that they have a superiority, or before the Pangs certainly had a superiority over over those from other places in Ireland. There is something special about Ulster men, while they fight this war in Ulster. And of course, there is a negotiation to that where one trial has gone around, one trial, Fergus just does it, even though he's told not to. And before the third one, May finally says, go out and find Cucullin. And we begin to see the true extent of the, the graphic blood and violence that is very present in the original texts from which the town is drawn and the main adaptation I'm going from Thomas Kinsella's um, quintessential edition uh, really is the one that captured that for the first time and you have that with the beautiful gory image of Ku Cullen smashing the skull of, uh, of Alil and Maeve's son all over their faces that's just a such a strong image and this slingshot Cullen has many famous weapons and this slingshot is one of them that he begins to pick away at the armies of his enemies a very interesting thing actually getting back to the idea of uh, the nationalist and republican symbolism it's said often that uh, Cullen fights a guerrilla war against against uh, the armies of Connacht and the armies of Maeve Guerrilla warfare is thought to have really been, if not invented, then certainly mastered by Michael Collins and mastered in the Irish War of Independence, where the British Army had far, far greater numbers and weaponry and and uh, ammunition to fill those weaponry. And while Ireland had far fewer numbers and far fewer soldiers and far fewer and far less ammunition, we did have people who knew the countrysides better. And that's why Michael Collins had his flying columns, as they were known, which were small militia groups which hid in the trees and the bushes and were able to ambush these far larger, these far larger numbers. And this is a huge, huge reason. It, it is the reason why 
why it was Britain who called a ceasefire in the Irish War of Independence, which would lead to the negotiation of the independence of this country. So it's very, very interesting that this is, and another reason why you would see Republicans using Cúchulainn as their symbol, in that Cúchulainn fights this guerrilla war as well. There are these obviously tens of thousands more soldiers than him, but he knows Ulster. He knows the terrain. <coughs> he knows the terrain he's fighting on, and this is his sport. And poor Al Orlam. I won't be able to, of course, so much of this part of the tawn is, and then this soldier went out, and then this soldier was killed, and then this soldier went out, and then this soldier was killed. And why they're in the original text is that every time one of them is killed, a place is named for them. There's always a place named for every person and everything that happened in the town, a lot of which may still be there, some which may have been renamed since. But in the for the purposes of this podcast, which is to give you all just as clear a version of this story, while going into some detail and making it feel like my own version, my goal here is to just, in as few episodes as possible, without it feeling like a synopsis, of just telling you this story. So obviously, if you're interested in further reading, always go to the Thomas Kinsella version and the Kieran Carson adaptation. And they have that kind of that extra level of geographical detail, which just for the purposes of the podcast, and not in general, but for the purposes of the podcast, isn't of a, of the utmost concern for me. There will be those here and there, like we have Tavlakti Orlam. I thought that was interesting that you kind of had the name of that place and then retrospectively discovered that's why it was named, because that's where Orlam was killed. But I am going to wrap things up there, <coughs> because that is... I think that's all we got to talk about for that. Um, we're going to keep going next week. We're going to get get through to part three. Um, it's brilliant to, to be in part three. I can't believe it's 55 episodes. Thank you so much to Paddy and Alan, as always, here in Head Stuff. It was your first time listening. Um, I hope this wasn't the first one to listen to it, but if you're a returning listener, thank you so much for your continued support. Please do follow me on Instagram at firesidebard, all one word. Uh, please do support the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash firesidepodcast. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. And I'll see you all and you'll hear me next time by the fireside. Thank you and goodbye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. Plus. 